right, folks, Barack Lurie on the Barack Lurie Podcast. Today, I have a very special treat. I've got uh, a very powerful uh, man, Rabbi Dove Fisher, uh, who has really spoken so much on fantastic issues of the day, conservative uh, man and one of us. Uh, he's the National Vice President for the Coalition for Jewish Values, a coalition of 2,500 Orthodox rabbis. He's also the senior contributing editor of American Spectator. Uh, he also writes in a lot of other journals as well, by the way. Uh, he's also the rabbi of Young Israel of Orange County in California, uh, a, a conglomeration of 135 congregations. Uh, rabbi Duff Fisher, thank you so much for joining the Baruch Lurie podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Baruch. Well, listen, the, the thing that everyone I know is now asking, uh, and, and I always like to ask the question, I, I have my own answer, but why is it that so many of our fellow Jews vote liberal. What's your take on it? I, I don't want to taint you with my interpretation of it yet, but what is it about uh, our people, as it were, that makes uh, them vote liberal? You know, it's so irrational that I was hoping I was going to learn from you today <laughs> the answer. I'll take a stab at it, but uh, I'm not sure anyone has an answer that makes good sense. So let's have something that makes bad sense. First of all, Jews everywhere in the world outside the United States vote conservative. So that tells me something initially. In, in Britain, the conservative party can rely on the Jewish vote against labor. Right. Um, in, in, in South Africa, if you've ever met South African Jews, they're off the charts conservative. Uh, Jews who have come to Israel stream from Russia and Ukraine. Uh, those are the only Russians and Ukrainians who get along with each other uh, when they come to Israel. They're rabidly conservative. And just every, and, and Israel, which hmm. is the country of the Jews, right. has for the last 50 years since 1977 been wow. conservative with conservative coalitions. So we have to begin right away by asking ourselves an even broader question. Not only why is it that American Jews vote liberal, but how did it come to pass that American Jews are out of step with Jews all over the world who understand that the Jewish interest is to vote conservative? And yeah. as we look at what's going on in the Middle East, for example, and we see responses to Israel, uh, we find that the right wing, the conservative side, that's where the support for Israel comes from. Right. As Democrats here in the United States, at their best, are wobbling as to where they stand on Israel. Initially, sure, 1,200 Jews get slaughtered. And initially, oh, they're right there with Israel. Right. Macron is, but you take a look after a little while, they're wobbling. The Republicans are very, very strong. Right. You look at what's going on on the campuses with Harvard and University of Pennsylvania, the Democrats, those are the ones that are saying, you know, give Claudine Gray, Gay her chance and give Liz McGill her chance. And it's the conservative Stefanik and others who put them to the fire and force them, actually force them out. Yeah. So that's background to the question. If we want to really look at it, we have to kind of look at it like this. There are Jews who are knowledgeable about their Jewity, their Judaism and their Jewishness, yeah. there are Jews who don't know the first thing. 
Uh, you need the more knowledgeable, the more authentically knowledgeable a Jew is about his or her Jewishness and Judaism, the yeah. greater the probability that those people are going to be conservative. I so, that's exactly I, where I stand. Yeah, it's it's exactly where I think about it. My my two impressions of it are start with the first point that you just made. Although I did not know as much as you said about the the English Jewish vote, uh, the the French Jewish vote for that matter, the South African Jewish vote. Uh, but in terms of what you just said, the more observant and the more knowledgeable, I like your phrasing better actually, the more knowledgeable they are about Judaism, the more uh, they are going to vote conservative. As a classic, and, and I think you will agree with me on this, and, and this is for the benefit of my audience, which is very largely also Christian, so those guys that you see with the black hats and the curls on the side of their heads, guys, those guys are all loving Trump. <laughs> just, that That's the way it is. And, and that's awesome. And the reason why is because conservative Jewish values, sorry, Jewish values are actually very conservative. So it's no surprise at all. I think the second reason, so yeah, so if you take away the secular Jewish vote um, and, you know, being a Jew is very different than being a Christian and in terms of definition. Uh, if a Christian didn't believe or doesn't believe in Jesus as his savior, for example, he he ain't a Christian anymore. Uh, however, if you're a Jew and you don't believe in God, uh, that doesn't make you any less of a Jew. Uh, for example, I mean, my brother, he's he's an atheist, but and I and I love him by the way. We get along great, but uh, don't he writes good, and he writes good TV shows and he movies. does, yeah, and, and movies. And he, uh, you know, don't ever say that he's not a Jew. And he's right. I mean, that's 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 a good point. The problem is, however, is that uh, lumping them together and surprise, surprise, he votes liberal. Uh, then it, the perception is that here is the Jewish vote, uh, quote unquote, and it's about 75 to 80 percent liberal. But if you look at them actually as a as a religiously observant group, they're all voting uh, conservative. So it's good news. The second reason why I think that the secular uh, Jews vote liberal or tend to vote liberal is more historical they the jews of europe especially from russia and germany they tended to rely on the government to save them from the pogroms and the attacks that jews would often face so the government was always the uh, protector of last resort and as a consequence they began to believe that government was good um when they came to America, they didn't realize exactly the opposite was true. Government is is not necessarily your friend, and Ronald Reagan understood this really well. So that that's a big difference between um, American Jews and European Jews, and and I, I hope that we've beaten this horse pretty well. So actually, I actually I'd like to just add two more insights. If sure. I may. Oh, please. The first insight: Judaism and Jewishness. The word Judaism is of a religion refers to the religious aspect. Right. Jewishness refers to the ethnicity. Okay. Judaism, Jews are a religio nation. With Christians, that is a religion. You can be an American Christian, you could be a French Christian, etc. Yeah. Probably a French Catholic. Um, with Jews, we are both a religion and a nationality and ethnicity. Therefore, a Bernie Sanders could have no religion, essentially, yet he has an ethnicity because yeah. we're both. Whereas with Christians, 
a Bernie Sanders if he were born as an American Christian, so he would not believe in God and he would basically have abandoned and denied his Christian background, right. but he'd still be an American. And it would make sense because they're two separate categories, religion and nationality. The right. Jewish phenomenon is that Judaism is a religious nation. But here's the thing I really wanted, and this is like the Dove Fisher theory <laughs> about Jewish liberalism. Okay. And I, I won't take up a long time, but give me a few moments on this one. All right. It hit me. I was doing some research. I'm a student of American history also. I was doing research. Where, Bar Barack, where in the United States would you say is the most conservative region of this country? Uh, I would say uh, Montana, uh, Idaho, that kind of region. How about the second one? How about the second one? Uh, the second most conservative? I would say... Uh, uh, it, rhymes, it rhymes with the Meep the meep Bouth. The, the Meep Bouth? The Deep South. Deep South. Oh, okay, Deep South. The yes. Confederacy. So here's the thing. You, you got me on Montana and Idaho. Got to put this one. I got to work that one into this theory. The Deep South, it shocked me. It didn't hit me. And then it shocked me. Where, other than Montana and Idaho, uh, are, are the strongest, a whole pocket, a whole region that you could say, for example, today is red. Right. The Deep South, the Confederacy. All right. Okay. Until 1980, for 100 straight years, from 1860, the Civil War period, when mm -hmm. they were Democrat, after all, Lincoln, the Republican, was uh, freeing the slaves, and they were with the KKK in the Deep South, and they identified as Democrat. For the next 100 years, from 1860 uh, to about 1980, 120 years, the entire Deep South, I'm talking Georgia, Louisiana, Alabama, Mississippi, Arkansas, Tennessee, right. all of them voted nonstop Democrat for the three for the following three federal offices, the two Senate, uh, the two Senate seats, U.S. Senate, as mm -hmm. well as the governor. That's not federal. They're, they're statewide. Right. They were those three seats. If you look it up. And I did. Mm -hmm. U.S. senators and governors that were sent for the for those seven states for 120 years, straight Democrats up to 1980. Right. So I asked myself, they were already deeply right wing and have been forever. Why were they still voting Democrat and actually hurting Nixon, hurting Reagan's nominees for the U.S. Supreme Court? Right. They were sent. They, the Christians of the Deep South, the right-wing evangelicals, and the hardline Baptists, they were the ones messing it up for Reagan and for all the Republican presidents, mm -hmm. sending Democrats who went. So what was that about? So I asked myself, hmm. I came to realize, here's what happens. When your community initially aligns with a party, as they did in the 1860s, to yeah. fight Lincoln. Now let's oh. check in with so the quiz. That'll be a, a, a part. That's all right. Uh, when mm -hmm. you need to break uh, for a No, no, no. It's, it's, no not, not, not at all. It's it's just a later, a later um, 
uh, video that we'll be playing. So okay, totally fine. So the thing is, when when a community initially aligns with a political party, because I was trying to figure out what that's about. Right. What happens is you start becoming vest, invested in that party. That is to say, uh, my son wants to get involved in politics. Why don't you go and meet with Senator Jones of the Democrat Party? Right. Uh, next thing you know, he's active in that party because the other party, the Republican Party, had no life in the Deep South. Everybody ah. went Democrat. Got it. Now, they want to become governors and they want to become Congress representatives and they want to become senators. Hmm. Uh, there's only one party. There's only one game in town. Uh, in the back of your mind, as I'm saying this, by the way, I'm almost winding down. But keep thinking Dove Heikand, a guy who was never anything but a conservative Republican, yet his entire political career was a Democrat because it was the only game in town in the deep south, the only game in town. Mm -hmm. until Reagan against Carter was yeah. the Democrats. So here's what happened. Mm -hmm. My kid needs a summer job to pick up garbage in the public park. I'm going to call my Democrat senator. He'll get a Democrat congressman. Right. And so you become invested in that party. That's your party. The mm -hmm. other party is what? So what does this have to do with Jewish liberals? Right. Jews came to the United States Three and a quarter million Jews came between 1881 and 1914. They spoke with Yiddish accents. Many could not read English. They spoke Yiddish. They mm. didn't know America. And they came off the boat at Ellis Island. And there were two political parties to choose from. Yeah, The Democrats were doing with the Jews what they now do with Hispanics at the southern border. They were standing there. They were greeting them. They were paying them five bucks to vote Democrat. Uh, they took care of them. They played... They played to the Irish. They played to the Italians. They played to the And what about the Republicans? The Republicans mm -hmm. saw them getting off the boat. They laughed at them, kept them out of their country clubs, kept them, the ones who became lawyers, kept them out of their law firms, kept them out of the hospitals. From And those Jews from the 1910s and 1920s affiliated Democrat because those were the ones who accepted them. And they avoided Republicans because they kept them out. Interesting. And they became, they became Southern Democrats. And once they lined up with the Democrats, they became invested in the Democrats. And they started teaching their kids. These yeah. are the people that care about Jews. Like this, yeah. Well, again, it's about protection at the end of the day. But I, I do want to move a little forward uh, sure. to the next topic, which is really trying to understand, uh, it's still related, uh, a lot of the Jew hatred, uh, but more particularly the, the hatred of goodness. Uh, which is a very important aspect of our show, because I'm fascinated about this. The the world reaction to October seven, uh, you know, the the naive approach to October seven, what what Hamas did to southern Israel, um, the naive response was, oh, okay, well, you know, at the very least now the world will see how evil Hamas is and how evil uh, the enemies of Israel are and how good and and how peace loving the Israelis are. Finally, a moment of clarity. Uh, between the Israelis on the one hand and uh, her enemies on the other. And you and I both, you know, knew that that would not be the case, uh, that in fact, the world would turn against Israel very quickly. Um, and sure enough, it, it happened just about right on cue, uh, as far as I'm concerned. And you see these people uh, so agitated and so um, vociferous about their opinions, uh, based upon virtually no knowledge whatsoever. And I want to share a couple of uh, 
videos that uh, really kind of articulate this point that I want to make. The really mass great. invaded Israel on the 7th of October. What was your initial reaction to them? They did today, Amat. I think so. I, honestly, like I think I need to be a bit more clued up on like everything that's going on. So just to let you know, this this is in a demonstration where they're rallying against Israel. These two women here, they're young. I would put them in the mid twenties, and they're saying, "I have no clue what's going on," and yet, and yet they're rallying against Israel and for Hamas. Anyway, I'll continue on. So I feel like I'm not really qualified to answer that too well. I mean, I'm not sure if I've seen anything that shows that that's actually happened or actually correct. Yeah. So there you go. <laughs> I mean, it, this is the kind of stuff we're dealing with, right? And and the question is of why why that's the case. Why is it that people are so uh, hell bent on participating in these things, uh, and and having such strong opinions of these things, and yet having no knowledge really to speak of? Uh, they, they, if, if you were to ask these same women, uh, young women, I, I would say uh, about how big Israel is, they would have no idea. If you were to ask them what's the only democracy in the Middle East, they would have no idea, and so on. And yet, there they are, uh, it's, you know, preaching for ultimately the destruction of Israel without even knowing it. They, they, they chant uh, from the river to the sea, which basically means let's destroy Israel. Uh, that's the study that I'm, I'm fascinated about with, at least for the purposes of this podcast, and, and where you can take us of what your thoughts are about this phenomenon, about how we don't want to see evil. That's my theory about this. Well, I start off uh, with a great clip that you played. I start off with this guy, Ami Horowitz, who goes around yes. asking college students, uh, I heard you chanting, from the river to the sea, Palestine <laughs> will be free. Right. Uh, what river exactly are you talking about? They are clueless. Yeah. Mississippi River, Missouri, Missouri River. I, I don't know. Is there a New York River? Is there a Boston River? I don't know. Okay, how about the sea? Um, you know, the sea no that's idea. near the river, the sea from the river to the sea. Yeah. Um, like, you know, and he just goes around. They have no clue that we're talking about the Jordan River, the Mediterranean Sea. They, have, they couldn't find it on a map. They have no idea what's going on. Yeah. So then why are they chanting that way? First of all, the college kids, because it's the it's the thing to do. I went to college. Um, it was lonely. Barack, I was at Columbia University in the 70s. And even though it was milder in those days than it is nowadays, it was liberal. And it was lonely. Sorry. It was um, it was socially lonely. Being a conservative at Columbia, you didn't get the girls weren't interested in going out with you. Uh, people did not readily uh, want to go with you to movies. Um, even among the Jews and the Jewish, the, the CJO, it was called the Council of Jewish Organizations. Uh, they were mostly liberal and they kind of shied right. away. Like, likewise, it was the same for me. I was in, in college in the 80s, uh, and this is at Stanford, uh, where there was uh, anti-apartheid stuff. That was the big thing of the, of the time. I, I did speak about this recently. In my, I don't want to bore the audience about my own particular anti-apartheid stuff uh, that, that was involved there, but I found it to be a very disingenuous movement. 
Uh, but nevertheless, of course, I'm against apartheid of, of all kinds. But uh, that's it was difficult to have a conservative mindset, although I wouldn't say that I was conservative back then. I wasn't liberal either, but I, I, I did know BS when I saw it. And I felt there was a lot of BS going on about it. Uh, but that's that's the way it was back then for for you and me. And now they're they're doing even more. So at least we were somewhat informed back then. But but I'm going to play this another clip. This is a clip from uh, Sky News in Australia. Uh, this this is a, tends to be a conservative website, but they are fantastic in terms of their analysis, and they pick up things that uh, yeah. I think are very very good. So uh, she's actually going to talk to uh, she's talking to or their interviewers are talking to uh, queers for Palestine representatives and uh, has a spot-on analysis. So uh, hang on, here we go. Now let's check in with the Queers for Palestine movement or Chickens for KFC. <laughs> so why was it important for you to come to the protest today? Um, I came with Queers for Palestine. I'm a trans, non-binary person. I believe we're not free until everyone's free. Queer liberation, queer people live in Palestine. It's pinkwashing going on and people are trying to tell queer people that they can't be part of what's going on in Palestine. And I just want to be here for queer Palestinians and for every Palestinians. Yeah, so uh, just I'm going to continue on, but just note that she actually thinks that there are queer Palestinians. Uh, if there are, <laughs> they're very much underground. Uh, they're, they're, they're so underground that they're probably below the tunnels of, the, uh, of Gaza. I was uh, going to say they're so overground they're standing on rooftops about to be pushed off. Exactly. Let's continue on from the um, from this. Is what's happening is this. Oh, love, if you weren't so utterly ignorant and self-involved, you'd understand why people are mocking your movement, even those who are pro-Palestinian. Where were you when uh, queer people in Palestine were fleeing to Israel to avoid brutal persecution. If you don't understand that radical Islam has zero tolerance for your lifestyle, then frankly, you're too dumb to be part of any discussion. But that hasn't stopped Queers for Palestine shutting down Manhattan Bridge. Okay, so I want to just add on to this point here. Um, I, I've spoken to more than a few intellectual liberals about this topic. Don't you think it's a little odd, this Queers for Palestine issue? Uh, isn't it like the KFC thing? That's that's her thing. It was very clever. Um uh, and, and they, their response to it was, oh, that's probably photoshopped or there's no such people. They, they wouldn't be so idiotic to do. But I, I, I'm telling them they actually believe this stuff. They think that there are queers in Palestine that are suffering somehow uh, and that they are suffering at the hands of the Israelis. No, they, they, the queers, uh, whether they're gay or lesbian or bi or whatever, they are running to Israel because they know that is the one safe place that they have in the entire Middle East. It's certainly not within the Arab or Muslim world. So when, when Ahmadinejad famously said in your alma mater in Colombia that there were no queers, no gays in Iran, everyone laughed and he seemed surprised. Do you remember this? And and if, but I think partly he thought that he was right because maybe he did indeed kill all the gays. I mean, that's what they do in Iran. So maybe, maybe he was actually right that there are no gays in Iran anymore because they got rid of them. 
it's it's an awful situation. Anyway, these are the people that simply are so, I wouldn't even say tone deaf, they're simply so ignorant, so unable to understand reality. Uh, and yet they have very strong opinions. Look, here, here's my theory, Doug. Part of the university experience you had at Stanford, um, what did you major in, may I ask? I uh, major in economics and humanities. Okay, I majored in political science. So <laughs> we both majored not in STEM, but in the soft sciences, so to speak. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, we get reading lists, at least for me. I don't know how much more advanced you were when you started college. I know you're quite brilliant because I, I know I know you. But I, I came in a babe in the woods from Yeshiva High School without having had that worldly experience. And I got reading lists. And that introduced me to the world of thinking beyond what I learned in Yeshiva. Yeah. My professors gave me reading lists. And I assumed they were giving me a universe of thinking on both sides from which I would be able to pick and choose. And what I came to see, it took time, is that the reading lists already you get, that's where the rot begins. The mm -hmm. reading lists are one-sided and you're taking young people who do not know what's going on in the world out there. They think they do because they see their friends are saying things, but yeah. the friends and they don't know. Now they're given reading lists, France Fanon, Marx Engels reader, and they go through four years of college thinking they've read 50 books on the subject, let's say, of the Middle Not East. Terror attack yeah. On his... yeah, Never ahead. having been exposed to some of the writings and thinkings on the other side to fill them in with information that they don't even have, the true mm -hmm. history of Israel. They don't know. So all they know is they're walking to class and their friends and girlfriends or boyfriends are going around like that idiot for the queers for Palestine from the river to the sea. And so then they join in and they're real cool and uh, from the river to the sea. And now they're going to have sex tonight because to have people that are willing to sleep with them since they joined river to the sea, as opposed to isolating them. I think, I think a lot of it is association. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, it's very hard to bust through the assumptions that people make. I, I talk, about this in a, my previous podcast, my most recent one, uh, my my concept of first first in wins, meaning that when you have a tabla rosa in your brain of, uh, on any particular issue, in this case Hamas and Israel, uh, or Palestinians and Israel, uh, whoever gets to you first uh, will win. If, however, you're trying to change the person who's already gotten, you know, influenced one way or the other, it's extremely hard to do that. It's, uh, you know, you're already busting against, you're running up against people's associations with this very smart professor who taught them about this, or some really erudite, or what they think is erudite friends who know this stuff really well. And uh, they're saying to themselves, well, I heard about people like you. And if my friend Bill were here, he would really, uh, you know, he would show you a good one, he would show you what's what. So it's, a, it's, it's very hard what you're fighting at the end of the day. Here's it, but the other thing I think that's causing people in this particular issue, Dove, is the unwillingness to confront evil. Uh, it's a very big deal, and you know we live in a society today where they don't even acknowledge that there's something called evil at all. We, we, you and I do. We know that there is evil in the world. Hamas is just one representative of evil, but it's real, and people don't want to see evil. 
to, to some extent, I don't want to see evil either. I, I don't want to see those videos that Hamas uh, uploaded themselves. I don't want to even see the pictures of the aftermath of what happened. Uh, it's so disturbing to me. But I, I think that's part of it, Dove, that that by by fighting against Israel and tearing down those those pictures of the hostages that you saw, uh, it's a way of pretending to themselves that evil doesn't exist. And that what Israel is doing, that they're the evil one, if anything, uh, and they're just that it's a structural sort of thing that, that they're willing to fight structural evil in the sense of capitalism and colonialism or all the isms that they want to throw in there that they're willing to acknowledge, but they, they're not actually willing to see the horrific barbarity that we saw on October 7. What, what's your take? You're absolutely right. Because the, the problem is that uh, you have to make a choice when you say something is evil or good. And yeah. you're being taught today, in fact, the greater society is morally, today, everything is gray. There's your truth and there's my truth. Yeah, what you just told me about one thousand two hundred Jews being slaughtered and cut up to pieces and and uh, raped and having their heads chopped off, babies, forty babies in a room with forty heads rolling around, and cutting a fetus out of a living woman and then stabbing what's left of that woman in the fetus to death and taking babies and putting them in ovens while the babies were well, that's your truth. And yeah. now my truth is that the Israelis did it. Well, how could you say that? Well, you have your truth and I have my truth. So you start with that. And then you add to that an unwillingness to come out black and white on issues. Everything is my truth and your truth. Um, and we live in a time where you're not able to do what you just said, to say this is even, not only today, but a week later, to say, a week ago, I simply was reacting just out of uh, just out of passion to say that's horrible. Looking back a week later, now I'm doing it intellectually. My passions have subsided, but intellectually, I'm looking back and saying that was and is evil. Yeah. And for other people, it's like we've moved on because um, we have new truths to worry about. I know. And, and to, to argue that something is evil uh, to them is an admission that uh, about something that they've never believed in in the first place. So it's a little bit like uh, suddenly saying that you believe in God when you're an atheist. It's, it's very hard for them to even use the word. So by ignoring it or even pretending that Israel fabricated it, uh, you know, the Holocaust denialism and now the October 7 denialism going on. It's a way of dealing with the, with the construct that that's that they, what is it called? Uh, cognitive dissonance in their mind. Um, I, I want to add to this very point. Well, uh, isn't it the same thing in a way, in a way, I, I don't need to belittle, of course, not as a rabbi and a Zionist and everything, but isn't it a little bit of the way that we're so worried about criminals' rights and yeah. no bail? You know, the, the person was arrested, but he's or she's a person too. pushed someone off the subway platform. OK, but no bail because we can't hold people just we don't do that to wealthy industrialists who've committed white collar crime. How can we take this? Per and the next thing you know, you've That's taken true. someone the same day they're back out 
pushing someone else off a subway. That's a but, great point of it's and and their answer to that is that it's the structural infrastructure and the system. They they like those words, right? Endemic and systemic. Uh, so they, they like to dismantle those. Those are the things that are evil. That's the level of evil that they're willing to acknowledge. But actual crime, uh, it's it's always somebody else who has caused uh, it, it in the first place. So uh, in this case, it's the uh, white capitalist uh, and racist and greedy system that we have that we need to dismantle. We wouldn't have had all these homeless and all the crime and the people people pushing people onto the subway, like you said. Uh, but for that, I want to I want to go on and talk about PBS uh, because they also address the campus turmoil uh, that's going on, what they call campus turmoil. Uh, listen to how they speak. They always have this kind of monotonous sound that's a PBS. I, th I think they must have patented it or something, Dove, the way they speak. But they, they talk about the uh, the demonstrations in, in a way that is very pro-Palestinian and, and just have to, to listen to, again, their, uh, their, their uh, desire to sidestep evil. All right, here we go. The Hamas terror attack on Israeli civilians two weeks ago and the subsequent Israeli bombardment of Gaza have roiled college and university campuses across the country, from Arizona State to Indiana to George Mason and many more. Jeffrey Brown reports on how protests and debates around free speech are reverberating on campus. <laughs> Between rain showers Friday on the campus of Rutgers University in New Jersey, members of the local chapter of the Students for Justice in Palestine staged the latest in a series of demonstrations. After the Hamas attack on Israel, the group issued a statement calling it a, quote, justified retaliation, and those behind the attack, freedom fighters. Now it was demanding an end to the bombing and siege of Gaza by Israel and defending its own right to speak out. They report us as anti-Semitic. However, what we are really truly doing is speaking out about the atrocities and crimes against humanity in Palestine. Protesters mostly covered themselves to hide their identities and spoke to us anonymously, citing fears of a backlash. Tensions are high. Plenty of students are really very terrified for their safety. Um, including self, I know a lot of my peers are afraid to leave their homes, staying at home as much as possible, meant some people skipping classes. Um, so there's definitely been a real threat to our safety and a sense of just kind of terrifying concern. Okay, so uh, I want to talk about a little bit about this. Uh, so that that last woman in particular, she's wearing, uh, you know, a, 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 what do you call it, a kafir. Uh, she's obviously pro-Palestinian, not, not Israeli. She's talking about fears for her safety. Like what, what? In what world is is she being attacked? Is there any situation where Israelis or Jews or anyone who's pro-Israel is going out and beating up these pro-Palestinians? If anything has happened, it's the reverse. Of course, we know that. But uh, look look at the way they're talking about this uh, and how they they're very uh, pro-Palestinian. They talk about uh, Israel being the one committing atrocities, uh, and they completely sidestep the October seven. Uh, issues they talk about it yes as a as a fact but uh, it, it seems to be almost just a catalyst at best and maybe a justification for israel to go and bombard in a horrific way and the humanity issues that they're talking about so again it's a sidestep of of reality it's but more importantly it's a sidestep of evil your thoughts 
there's no way that Hamas can be uprooted without bombing the heck out of Gaza. Unfortunately, Hamas hides behind people, the so-called expression, the human shields. They right. their weapons, <clears throat> their launchers, uh, their terrorists hide in apartment buildings and in mosques, hospitals, ambulances, schools. So for Israel to take that out and put them out of business finally, once the Israeli ground troops have some idea and identify this is where they are, there's no way to put them out of business other than to bomb those facilities where they're hiding. There's no way to bomb those tunnels. They've got 300 miles of tunnels. Practically the, it, the entire Gaza is like a two-floor building. It's a duplex. You could live upstairs on the street or downstairs in a tunnel. It's like the New York City subway system. It blankets every every foot of that of Gaza. And in order to get Hamas to surrender or to leave or to give up and to return the hostages that they're holding, there's no alternative but to bomb. Now, this is not a new Israeli thing. The United States, England, in order to win World War II and drive Hitler into submission, had to bomb and they bombed Dresden and other parts of Germany. And when we face the loss of hundreds of thousands of Americans in order to take down Japan, yep. Harry Truman made a horribly difficult but right decision to save hundreds of thousands of Americans who would have been killed in Japan. Instead, he dropped two bombs, and that was it. Look at the, des the, de the destruction. But at that moment in time, the American people were standing with Truman. Thank you, Harry Truman. Well, and not only that, but to add to your point, uh, that th this was all totally avoidable, the, the two bombs that were dropped, uh, because they invited the ambassador from uh, Japan to go see uh, the, the incredible destructive power of the atom bomb uh, in the desert. I forget exactly where, I assume New Mexico somewhere. And uh, he saw it. And he said, uh, I'm not impressed, uh, I, don't, I don't care. And so that's when we dropped our first bomb on Hiroshima. And then again, they invited the Japanese to surrender. The Japanese decided not to surrender. And then that's the second, it's only because of, at that point that we went to Nagasaki and bombed that city as well. And only after that, there was a, a complete surrender. So they had many um, exit ramps as it were, off ramps. To, to get out of the war and to, to avoid all these horrific deaths that resulted from the atom bombs, but that's all on them. Uh, and likewise, everything that's happening in Gaza is all on Hamas. And and by the way, and, and I take this from this uh, video that I saw recently of this, this young lady, Mia, I think she was 21, she was a hostage, she was taken and she was released as part of the hostage exchange. And she said, look, they're all culpable, they're all guilty. Everyone in, in in Gaza is in on it. They support Hamas. They support the taking of hostages. They celebrate the destruction of Israel. They want to see Israel destroyed. Don't think for a moment there's such a thing as an innocent uh, Gazan. Uh, I'm sure there is, but I, I think you can count them on, on a hand, one hand or two, and that's about it. And uh, and they would love to leave Gaza, if anything. But so many of these people are, in fact, very big supporters. They participated in October 6th. 
uh, even young boys who are 10 years old were racing in and participating and killing people. So it's a it's a horrific thing. Uh, but nevertheless, this is a horrific thing that they brought upon themselves. What is your your answer? I, I did want to, on, on what you said, in 2005, there was a free election of the Gazans and the other Arabs in Judea and Samaria, what they call the West Bank. Right. Uh, and Hamas won the election heavily. In the It was a free election. Jimmy Carter went from the United States to observe and monitor with the team and came back and said it was a proper election, that he was surprised by the result. He did not expect Hamas to win by as much as it did, or even to win at all. But he said it was a free election. That's what they stand for. Point one. And the other point, point two, um, Mahmoud Abbas, known in the Middle East as Abu Mazen, a terrorist name, uh, became prime minister of the so-called Palestine Authority uh, in Judea, Samaria, the so-called West Bank. That was 2005. He was elected to a four-year term. Mm -hmm. He's not allowed. He He's now in the um, 18th year of his four-year term. He has not allowed an election. So the question the question is, okay, interesting. He hasn't allowed it. He's a dictator or whatever. He's a type. But the other question is, why has he not allowed an election? And everyone knows the reason that if there would be an election, he knows it. Everyone knows it. Hamas would win by a landslide. That is to say, there is no greater proof that there are not many innocent, innocent Gazans. Yeah. Everyone knows they'll vote for Hamas. They've been polled and surveyed 70, 80 percent. The hostages you mentioned, experienced so-called civilians, non-Hamas Gazans, held some of these hostages. They were handed over to them and they were part of the problem. So what do you suppose? Uh, I mean, look, my, my, uh, as soon as October 7 happened, I said, uh, you know, I, I want to take a page from the COVID plan and, and have 15 days to flatten the Gaza. That's what I wanted, right? And completely destroy it. Uh, and I think that, you know, if we look at Gaza as Amalek, and I'll let you describe what Amalek means, because uh, you're the rabbi between us, uh, I, I think that's what we might have to do. Uh, and, and I'm not talking about, uh, you know, somehow appreciating that there's good people there and such. I, I, I almost feel like we're at the time of Sodom and Gomorrah, where, you know, God uh, asks Abraham, or Abraham asks, can, if I find, what is it, 100 good good people, uh, then will you spare these cities? And then he has to negotiate down to, what is it, 10 good people. Uh, and then, of course, he can't find the 10 good people. I doubt that we can find the 10 good people in Gaza. This, this is uh, this is an area that is is offering only misery, not only to Israel but to to its own people. Um, it's a vicious, vicious enterprise, and I don't know that allowing it to survive is any different than allowing the the crocodiles in your swimming pool to to survive. You know, you can you can kill quite a few of the crocodiles, but as long as there's two left uh, and they can mate and have more uh, crocodiles, you're still going to have crocodiles in your pool. It, it's unacceptable. That's the way I look at it. And anyway, tell me if you can, if, if you don't mind, mind you know, indulging me about Amalek and why that resonates so deeply to the Jewish people. For Jewish people, there's always been an understanding that there was a nation going back to biblical times, Amalek, um, 
who were eternal enemies of the Jewish people. God says in the Bible, these are eternal enemies. They first appear on the scene as the Jews first are getting out of Egypt during the famous exodus after the 10 plagues and the splitting of the sea. And the entire Middle East at that time, no one wanted to mess with the Jews. Not that the Jews, they were, they were just former slaves. No one knew whether they really could fight, but everyone was terrified based on what they had heard about 10 plagues and the sea splitting. No one wanted to start with Jews, except for Amalek. They came from out of nowhere, a roving band without their own land, by the way, whereas other peoples like the Egyptians and the Moabites had their own land. The Amalekites, the Amalekites had no land of their own. Rather, they they roved the, they roved the region and they would massacre men, women, and children just for the uh, property that they could steal, the jewels and whatnot. And that was the first battle that the Jews had to fight. And so that infamous battle, the one in which the Bible talks about how um, Moses stood on a, the battle was in a valley and Moses stood on a hilltop so that the people could see him and he was supposed to raise up his hands. And whenever he had his arms raised, uh, the Jews succeeded in the battle. And when his arms got heavy and they dropped, uh, the Jews did not do as well in battle. So he needed two people, his brother Aaron and uh, Hur, his uh, nephew, had to hold his arms up so that they could continue winning. And mm -hmm. by the end of the war, God said that these people will be out to destroy you for all eternity until you destroy them first. And so you need to wipe out the memory of Amalek from under the heavens. And of course, the rabbis even ask about that. Wipe out their memory? We have to, if it's a commandment to wipe out their memory, we have to remember them. To remember, we have to wipe them out. Paradox, yeah. Um, it's a paradox, like two doctors, a paradox. And um, what ended up happening is that throughout history, we've seen this in Hitler. There are certain people where, where we Jews start saying, you know, it's been a long time and the old empires have disappeared, the Roman Empire, the Greek Empire. And we're not quite sure who the Amalekites are today because they're not an identifiable people anymore. But you start having people start feeling, you know, we think we found them. Yeah. We take a look at what happened with Hitler. We take a look at what's happened with Hamas. And there's a sense of these are the people that we're commanded to destroy. Because if we don't destroy them, it's like what Israel has had. Israel, in a period of 18 years since Israel left, left Gaza uh, unilaterally under Ariel Sharon, the Hitnatkut, the disengagement, um, in a period of 18 years, Hamas has made six wars. And Israel developed this conceptia, this concept that you don't want to get into a messy war like what we're watching the last two months. The world won't put let us do it to wipe them out. So let's just go in for two weeks, destroy as much as we can of them. And then, in other words, we're going to mow the lawn. And we know the grass is going to grow back. The weeds will grow back. And in three years, they're going to start a new war. And we'll go back and we'll, in two weeks' time, mow the lawn. We won't, be able, we won't be able to finally put them out of business because all those left-wingers out there, 
are going to start from the river to the sea. And therefore, we have to keep doing that. And finally, you get to a point where, you know, as with Amalek in the Bible, there's there's certain people, you've got to wipe them out. Well, it's interesting. I was just going to I was just going to ask you that very question that you just, I think you just answered it. I was going to say, okay, you're, you're Prime Minister Bill Fisher, and you are in charge now, and you have complete command of the Israeli army. What do you do? Uh, and I think your answer is that you wipe them out, uh, like you said. Um, I think there may be no other solution in this particular case. Uh, this is a very evil enterprise. And but you don't point, you don't point at civilians. You don't target civilians. But if they're in the way, we're sorry. Yeah. We're sorry, but we have our own country to survive. It's what we're, we did in no World War II. It's exactly what happened in World War II, not just Dresden, yeah. but many other towns in, in Germany uh, that we that we bombed uh, you know, fairly indiscriminately, much more indiscriminately than what Israel is doing. And, and Israel, uh, definitely the most moral army in the world. They, they do knock-knock bombs. They, they warn people by emails, by leaflets, by calling them, telling them we're going to blow up this building. And then, and then the the owners of the building say, "We don't care. Go ahead and blow it. We'd rather have people die. That's uh, more advantageous to us." So, it's um, they have the look. And I say this even with respect to the, I guess, 130 or so remaining hostages. There's a very strong chance that by bombing Gaza, as you suggest, uh, Dove, that we will lose many, if not all, of these hostages. Uh, but unfortunately, this is going to be one of the tragic results of war. Look, the, the fact is that when we exchanged 1,026, I think, uh, uh, Palestinian terrorists for one uh, former soldier, Gilad Shalit, back, uh, I think, about 12 years ago, um, horrific things happened. And the, the mastermind of October 7 was one of those people that was released. So it's we, we just can't do this. We can't keep on doing it. At the end of the day, the, the calculus is such that we're losing far more people than the one man that we saved, uh, Gilad Shalit. Absolutely. So, I, I want to make this point also. Um, and I mentioned this to someone recently, and I, I found it interesting. I, I asked the person, can you tell me so far in the two and a half months of the war, what outrageous, name me one or two or three outrageous uh, war crime type things that have happened in that war of the last two and a half months. Right. And the only thing that he could think of was that hospital in Gaza, that at the very beginning, that Shifa hospital in Gaza, that like in the first week of the war got bombed and everybody started condemning Israel for the first three hours until Israel came out with everything from audio proof to other proof that the hospital actually had been blown up by some Gaza terrorists whose bomb malfunctioned. And so they were trying to shoot the rocket at Israel and it didn't go the full distance and ended up landing at the hospital. Exactly. So I said to the person, okay, okay, that's one. That's one war crime flavored incident. And it turns out Israel did not do that. Can you name another one? It's two and a half months. And he said, you know, I cannot think of this, like the last war, there was that building that had uh, like the Associated Press and some of the media, and they said Israel bombed. I said, name me one incident in the last two and a half months comes to mind. 
besides the hospital. It's, oh, so you could talk about, oh, it's a war crime and it's indiscriminate. Name one indiscriminate bombing that Israel has done in two and a half months. Yeah. It's yeah. an extraordinary thing. I don't it's, even know how they've been able to do it. I, I don't I, know how they've been able to do it incredible courage and uh, patience to to do what Israel is doing. Uh, and they're doing a yeoman's uh, job of, of making sure that they root out uh, mostly the bad guys. They're certainly not targeting anybody innocent, but innocent people will die. Uh, and that is the nature of war. And then suddenly they're talking about war has to be this. I, I think the only time that, and I joked around about this a couple of podcasts ago, the only way that the world would somehow be agreeable to Israel going into uh to Gaza, and even this I don't know so so much of, uh, that they would go in uh, and they would find out who the Hamas actual terrorists are, and then they would ask them, would you mind pretty please if we can arrest you and bring you back for trial in Israel? Would that be all right with you? And then they would say yes. And then just to make sure of it, they would sign that they're agreeing to this situation without any duress whatsoever, of course, it's of their own free will. And then they go back to Israel. Maybe the, the the world would tolerate that, but of course, you and I know they wouldn't even tolerate that, uh, because if they can't accept the monstrosity of what happened on October seven, then they certainly wouldn't accept the uh, gentility uh, and and the professionalism of the Israeli army uh, to, to to begin with. I want to move on to a somewhat different topic, but also also very related, which is this notion of um, how great uh, Trump has been to the Jews. And this is this is worthy of its own podcast. But uh, Dov, you did a fantastic article, I believe, in the Wall Street Journal uh, some time ago, a couple of weeks ago, and you laid out the great uh, efforts that Trump had done. That reveals not only that is he that he's uh, uh, tolerant of the Jews, but actually is wildly supportive of the Jews. He is a Jewophile, as it were, and. It was picked up by no less than Mark Levin from Fox News. And I wanted to play uh, that particular clip, if I could. So let me find it and uh, and then move on with this, because it was a really it was really well articulated what you wrote. And I like the way that Mark Levin uh, points it out as well. So here we go. Please, please find the clip. Please find the clip. It's my favorite I clip. I have it. Yeah, that's true. It's my favorite clip in TV history. <laughs> it's right up there with the best episodes of Seinfeld. That's true. All right, so let's. I'm going to start because uh, he he introduces it very well. Here you go. Interesting. So the American media, which is so detestable and unconscionable, so totally immoral, tries to turn Donald Trump into an anti-Semi-Jew hater, when in fact he has spent his entire life supporting Jews and Jewish causes, as had his father. But I want to get into something more specific because I want to juxtapose this with Biden and the Biden regime and the Democrats. When others refused to hire Jews, Trump did. Number one, he opened the restricted Mar-a-Lago private club to blacks and Jews when he bought it. Number two. I, I just want to say, folks, that this is uh, Mark Levin actually reading from uh, Dove Fisher's article in the Wall Street Journal. So he's, he's quoting him and he already introduced him. Uh, so anyway, number two. He surrounded himself with honorable Jewish legal scholars and attorneys like David Freeman and Jason Greenblatt, and even a bum named Michael Cohen, whose kid's bar mitzvah he attended. In Israel, Trump will be elected prime minister by a landslide after nearly half a century of broken promises by other American presidents. Three, Trump formally declared and America recognized United Jerusalem as Israel's capital. 
Four, he moved America's Israel embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Five, he recognized Israeli sovereignty over the Golan Heights. Six, he recognized the permanent legality of all Jewish communities and cities in Judea and Samaria, as in all legal situations that Israel's own courts regard them as legal. Seven, he cut off hundreds of millions of dollars funding for Abu Mazan, that is, Mohammed Abbas, the head of the Palestinian Liberation Organization that was founded by Arafat. Why? Because they were having pay for slay, that is, paying Palestinians to murder Jews, terrorism. This is what Biden and Blinken referred to as the moderate Palestinians, the PLO Fatah party. He closed down the PLO office in Washington, did Trump. Number nine, he closed down America's longstanding Palestine consulate in Jerusalem. Ten, pulled the United States out of the anti-Semitic UN Human Rights Council. Eleven, cut off 300 million in funding that Americans had been sending to the Jew-hating UNRWA, Jew-hating UN agency that runs schools in places like Gaza, where Arab Muslim children are taught to hate Jews and to murder Jews. Number 12, appointed a UN ambassador, Nikki Haley, who warned anti-Israel countries that were taking down names. 13, almost unilaterally brought about the Abraham Accords that induced several leading Arab Muslim countries for the first time to enter into the true peace agreements with Israel without Israel ceding an inch of Jewish territory in Judea and Samaria to the Palestinians. 15, his education secretary, Betsy DeVos, endorsed yeshiva education during visits to two yeshivas in a New York City trip while skipping visiting the city's public schools. 16, Trump issued an executive order on combating anti-Semitism to enhance enforcement of Title VI of the Civil Rights Act to protect Jewish college students from the overt Jew hatred now rampant on so many American campuses. You know, other presidents could have done that. So he takes the Civil Rights Act, that's this, this Title VI part, and he signs an executive order, and these suits that are being brought against these universities now are being brought under this part of the act as a result of Donald Trump's executive order. 17, he named Kenneth Marcus as Assistant Secretary of Civil Rights at the Department of Education to investigate anti-Semitic episodes at campuses like Records University. Oh, the good old days when there was one campus. Now there's so many, you can't even count them. Trump deported the last Nazi war criminal known to be hiding in America. He signed into law a bill making it easier for Holocaust victims to reclaim stolen property. He ended the disastrous Iran deal and implemented crushing sanctions against Iran. He signed the Taylor Force Act. No more American money goes to the PLO, you know, the moderate Arabs, because they keep killing uh, and using our money to kill Jews and Americans. Number 22, knocked off Qassam Soleimani, the head of the IRG for Iran. 23, rubbed out Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, the head of ISIS. He shattered State Department policy by authorizing Americans born in Jerusalem to list Israel or their American passports as their country of birth. Anyway, so I, I, I'm sorry, you listed so many good uh, things. I just wanted to give you a, such a great sampling of what Dov uh, put together. He, he amalgamated all these very great points that Trump had done. And, and I just want to thank you, Dov, for, for synthesizing all these fantastic points that Trump had done. And, and, and just to kind of push back on all these idiots out there that claim somehow that, that Trump is, is a racist, 
and anti-Semitic at the same time, notwithstanding the fact that he has a Jewish daughter, Orthodox grandchildren, uh, Orthodox son-in-law, of course, that his father was so philo-Semitic uh, as well and thought that uh, their fortunes were tied uh, with the health of, of Jews, that it was good for America, good for everyone to be pro-Jewish. You, you really laid it out so beautifully, Dove, and I, I want to thank you for that because uh, on behalf of you know, fellow Jews uh, everywhere, and for that matter, for the decency of Western civilization, this was a very important moment uh, in the pushback against uh, the anti-Semites of the world. So uh, I wanted to kind of surprise you with that because I found that clip. And, uh, and it was, great. I was so proud of you uh, for doing that. I, I know that guy, I said to myself. Thank Don't, you. Doug Fisher, I want to thank you for being on with the Brock Lurie podcast. We are out of time, but your analysis, as always, is spectacular. I, I hope that we can have you again on the Brock Lurie podcast. Is that possible? I look forward to it very much. All right. All right, Doug Fisher, thanks so much. In the meantime, this is Brock Lurie signing off saying God bless, and we'll talk with you next week.